This is Made to Conquer, a podcast designed to inspire you to have a deep relationship with Jesus. Jesus told us to make every effort to enter through the narrow door so that when we stand before him, we hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Hello, everyone. This is Tiana Showy, and welcome to the podcast Made to Conquer. You guys are awesome. Truly, thank you for showing up. Thank you for being in this together. We're a body, we're a team. I do this because I, and I say this over and over again, I just, my life has been radically transformed by Jesus. And a huge part of that transformation occurred with what we're going to talk about today. And that is starting to read my Bible. And I just want to encourage you in your walk with Jesus so you draw closer to him, especially as the day draws closer. And when I say the day, we I'm talking about the return of the Lord. Ah, you guys, this is the biggest podcast I have ever endeavored to take on because over the past couple of weeks, as I've just been praying, I, I pray you know, and ask the Lord to lead me as to what he wants me to talk about. And this has just been on my heart for a while because I get asked hundreds of questions a week about the Bible. And so we are going to dig in and we are going to cover Bible basics 101, the things I wish I had known about the Bible when I first started reading the Bible. And all of this in hopes that you guys, as you read the Bible and as you learn more about the word of God, it, it inspires you to spend more time in the word of God. As I've said before, and I'm, and I'm going to say this again, I'm not a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible encourager. I want to encourage you in your walk with the Lord to spend more time with him. And I think knowing some basic information about the Bible will help you with that. So we're going to talk about all the questions I get on a regular basis. We're going to talk about the history, the timeline, the chronology of the Bible, the languages of the Bible, the translations of the Bible, study tools for the Bible. All of these things help give you some perspective and understanding as to who was Ezra? When did he come on the scene? How about Esther? What about Ruth? Joshua? When are the judges? When is all of this? How does all of this fit together? We've got a lot to tackle today. This is going to be a long podcast. I don't apologize for that. I just feel like to cover everything we've got to talk about, let's do it in one fluid motion. Now, if you are a note taker, this is the podcast to take notes on because I have got good news for you. I am going to make my notes available to all of you guys. So I'm actually, I, I had to make notes to do this. So I've got a four page word document that has bullet point outlines of what we're going to talk about. I'm going to put a copy of this on the link in the show notes. So you guys can go in and download this yourself. But one thing you'll learn about me is I'm very much a bullet point note taker. I, I use the bullet points to remind myself what to say, but very little of what I'm saying is going to come off of notes. So take notes because the notes, I'm going to fill in a lot more information that won't be in the notes. But the key things that you're going to need to know, like the tools that I'm going to talk about, I've got links and hyperlinks and all that available to you. So you guys will have access to all of these tools I talk about afterwards. But a lot of the meat that we're going to get into, into today will not be in the notes. I'm excited about this. I am very fortunate in that I grew up in a church that taught the word of God. Uh, I grew up in a church that simply that, that the motto of the church was simply teach the Bible simply. So we were taught expositionally through the Bible. What that means is verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the scripture. We were not taught topically. Now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with type of topical Bible studies, uh, but I do think that there's a difference between 
you know, what, what you get from a topical Bible study, which is more of an encouragement and edification versus a, a, through, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word of God, you, you kind of walk away with different things. Again, it's all the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's the thing that you're going to hear me coming back to all throughout this is what has made the difference for me. You can read the Bible and you can become a student of the Bible and not be any closer to the Lord because you've not invited him into the process. And so what, you know, what we're going to take away from this is that the Bible is something that God gave us as a tool. It is a beautiful gift from him. It is how we know him more. It is how we draw closer to him. It is how we gain a deeper insight and understanding into who he is and what he has for our lives. But it is not something that should replace our relationship with the Lord. It is a part of our relationship with the Lord. And I say this to say, I know people who have gone to Bible college, gone to seminary, and they've made a God of studying the Bible and not of having a relationship with the God of the Bible. You notice that subtle difference? You can you can make you can make religion in the study of the Bible your God and miss the whole point, which is to have a relationship with God. And so what we're going to see as we go through this is it's the beautiful story and the interwoven theme of God's love for us and his redemption for us as he created us as free will creatures so we could enter into a true and genuine relationship with him. So with that introduction, let's pray. And then you guys, let's hit the ground running because we've got a lot of, lot to talk about in this episode. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Lord, we just thank you so much for this precious word that you've given us, Lord. And it contains life and it contains sustenance for our souls, for our spirits, Lord. And, and Jesus, you know, he tells the disciples, I have food that you do not understand. And part of that, Father, is your word. Your word is it is bread from heaven, Father, that that nourishes us. But Lord, it is also the truth. It is the light. It is your story. It is your story of might and wonder and all of the amazing things that tell us about who you are and how great your love is for us, Father, how deep and profound your provision is for us. Lord, I just give this time to you. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would lead this conversation. This is your word. You inspired this word through every story, every author. And Father, we just ask that as we open it up and endeavor to understand more about your word, Lord, that you would inspire this conversation. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Father. And and I just pray what we are commanded is that if anybody speaks, let them speak with the very words that God provides so that through all things, Christ Jesus may be praised. And Lord, I just ask that this would be your time, your words. And I just lay myself down before you. Father, we love you and we pray this in your precious name. Amen. So my life became transformed when I made it a habit of reading my Bible. And when I say habit, I don't want to discredit the fact that I don't do this from a religious sense. I don't want to, I don't want to give that implication at all. I read my Bible because I love reading my Bible. I read my Bible because I love drawing closer to the Lord. I read my Bible because I don't want to show up on the battlefield of life every day without having checked in and gotten commands for my commander, nourished my spirit, the part of me that I want to be ministering from. In other words, the Holy Spirit. And and I don't want to, I'm not trying to conflate my spirit with the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying that we are in a spiritual battle as much as we are on a physical planet. And if you don't feed your spiritual soul, your spirit, I, I shouldn't, I'm, the soul and the spirit are two different things, but if you don't feed your spirit, then you're going to be spiritually anemic. 
we are so blessed as Christians, especially for those of you that are listening from a first world country that have access to a Bible. Uh, Most of us can get a Bible within 24 hours on an online shopping or within a few days. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who will never have the opportunity to read the entire word of God, who may never even get a portion of the word of God. We've had people throughout history who've died and given their lives to bring God's word to people all over the world. I think the first and most important thing I will say is do not take for granted this precious gift that God has given you because so many of our brothers and sisters that have gone before us and that live in the world today do not and have not had the privilege of being able to do what we can do, which is sit down and open God's word at our convenience. And it's something I don't want to take for granted. So let's talk about the basics of the Bible. So first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how the books of the Bible are categorized into different categories. The Bible is not written in chronological order, which is what confuses a lot of people about reading the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the categories of the Bible, what the different books, how they're categorized. And then we're going to go through the chronological story of the Bible, and then we'll plug in what books fit into that chronological story. Again, I've got a great table for you guys in the notes that will break this down for you even much clearer than I can communicate via an audio file, but it's really cool to know this story. So first of all, the, the Old Testament is broken into five categories, well, four categories. So you've got the books of the law and the books of the law are considered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is also called the Torah. Then you have the historical books and the historical books are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and the book of Esther. You have your wisdom and poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then you have the prophets. Now, typically the prophets are broken into what are called the major and minor prophets. The only difference between major and minor prophets is the size of the book. So the major prophets are the bigger books, which are Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, and then all the rest of the books are considered minor prophets. I think of them as the prophets because the size of the book to me doesn't change anything. So then the prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So that's kind of the breakdown of the Old Testament. Those four categories, the law, the history, the wisdom, slash poetry books and the prophets. Now, the cool thing about the Bible, and as we break this down, is you'll see that all by almost every, no, let me not say almost every book of the Bible has some sort of prophecy in it. Obviously, every book of the Bible has some sort of wisdom in it. Every book of the Bible has some sort of history in it. And then every book of the Bible has some sort of law. And when I say some sort of law, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into all the different categories. We have the Mosaic law, the Levitical law. I'm not going to go into all those things today, but, but law, you know, things that God teaches us to keep us out of trouble. (laughs) That's how we're going to call it. That's how I'm going to classify the law. Hey kids, I love you. Don't be dumb. (laughs) All right. So we've got those different categories. And then now we get to the new Testament and the new Testament is broken into the gospels. So the gospels are the four stories of Jesus. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm going to go into more detail on those. When we get to that point in the timeline, we have the history book, which is the book of acts that tells the story of the early church. We have the epistles. So all the rest of the books of the Bible in the New Testament, with the exception of Revelation, are the epistles, which are the letters written either to people or to the churches. So we're going to break those down as we get into that section. And then we have prophecy, which is the book of Revelation. So we've got these different categories that the books of the Bible fit into in the Old and New Testament. 
So now let's kind of do a high level timeline overview of the Old Testament. Now I've got a link to an interactive timeline that you can find online. You can buy charts and graphs if you want to go into this in more detail, but I just, I'm just going to give an overall outline of the story because I think this is important to understand when you're trying to break this down. So let's give an overview and then, then we're going to break it down into smaller pieces. So you have the Genesis story. God creates the world. You have Adam and Eve, they sin, they get kicked out of the garden of Eden. And from there you have the flood, the tower of Babel, the story of Job, is squeezes in there from a timeline perspective. You have the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has jo- has Joseph. Joseph is the one who rules Egypt. Then you have the people of Israel who go to Egypt. They become slaves of Egypt for 400 years. God sends Moses. Moses gets them out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then they're they are ruled by the judges until they beg God for a king. God raises up Samuel. Samuel anoints Saul as king of Israel. Saul does not obey the Lord. So God gets rid of Saul and replaces him with David. Then we have the period of the Kings. And after the Kings, they, the Israelites, the Jews uh, from Judah, and we're going to talk about how Israel and Judah split at some point that they now go off into exile in Babylon because they were unfaithful to the Lord. And so you have this period of time, a 70 year period of time where the Jews are in Babylonian exile. This is when the book of Daniel is written after that, Then you have now the calling to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So Ezra and Nehemiah go back. Ezra rebuilds the temple with with Zerubbabel. And then Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls. Then you have this period of time that's silent uh, for the Bible. And during that period of silence, this is when Alexander the Great shows up on the scene and Greek becomes the prominent language in the world. And then slowly, shortly after that, the Romans show up and the Romans begin to occupy everywhere. The Romans now step in, they take over Israel. And in, now at that point, after a period of time, here comes the Messiah. So you have this kind of story, this, this long story that occurs. So again, just to remember, you have the patriarchs, which are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then you have the Exodus, which is Moses, Joshua. Then you have the judges, the kings, exile, silence, Jesus. This is the high-level timeline of the Bible. So now let's start to break this down. Let's break down these events, talk about the characters, put them in context, and understand which books fall into which section of the timeline. So in the book of Genesis, just in the book of Genesis alone, we have the creation, we have the fall, we have the flood, the Tower of Babel. So this is when humans got together, decided that they were going to build a tower to heaven. God confuses their language and that project comes to a stop in this time frame. So when we're talking chronologically speaking, not in the book of Genesis, but from a chronological perspective, the book of Job is occurring right, right around this time. So this is after the flood. You have Abraham. So Abraham comes on scene. He, he wins the favor of God and God makes a covenant with Abraham that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, this is the, the reason that this is such an interesting story is that Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, it was actually Abram and Sarai at that time, they were barren. They had no children and they were very old when God made this promise to them. So in fact, Sarah laughs because she's thinking, how in the world am I going to get pregnant? I'm, I'm way past childbearing age. Well, sure enough, just as God promised, they, they give birth to Isaac. Now, one of the things that I want to point out as we kind of go through this is, and Jesus actually says this later, but 
the entire Bible points to Jesus. All of the stories, all of this leads up to the Messiah and we see him interwoven all throughout the scripture. And so I want to, you know, I want to point out when it makes sense at a high level perspective, all of the ways that Jesus shows up in the old, or many of the ways I should say, many of the ways Jesus shows up in the old Testament. So we have the story of now God changes their name to Abraham and Sarah. They give birth to Isaac. God says to Abraham, take Isaac up and I want you to sacrifice him. And this was, you know, God testing to make sure that God was still the God of Abraham's heart and that Abraham had not loved Isaac more than he loved God. But this is also a foreshadow of the fact that God was going to sacrifice his only son. God loved us enough to sacrifice his only son to redeem us to him. And in return, he asks for us to love him above all else, to, for him to be the Lord of our hearts, the Lord of our lives, the Lord of our minds, the Lords of our finances, our God, truly our King. So, you know, we know the story of Abraham and Isaac doesn't really occur. Isaac has Jacob. We have a cool story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, his, his two wives. Now Jacob has the 12 sons and those become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where the 12 tribes of Israel come from are Jacob's 12 sons. And he has only two sons by his wife, Rachel, who he loved, and that is Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph, God gives a prophetic dream to Joseph that he is going to rule his family. Uh, His brothers don't like it so much. And so they decide that they're going to kill him. Uh, But then his older brother, his oldest brother, Reuben says, well, let's not kill him. And they decide instead to sell him as a slave to a caravan in Egypt. And so Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He goes and he becomes a slave of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar, God's favors on him again, because, you know, even though God had given Joseph a prophetic dream and it was not yet going to come, didn't mean that God's favor wasn't there. God was preparing Joseph for what it was going to take for him to become the ruler of Egypt and fulfill the prophetic dream that he gave him. So Joseph rises to prominence in Potiphar's home and ends up running his whole home. Well, Joseph's Potiphar's wife has this crush on Joseph, tries to get him to sleep with her. He says no. And when he flees her, she grabs his cloak and then claims that he raped her. So, or tried to sleep with her, I should say. So then he gets thrown in prison. So now he has this extended period of time in prison. Again, God's favor is on him. He ends up running the prison. And while he's in there, Egypt, uh, Egypt's ruler Pharaoh has two of his servants in prison with them. They both given dreams about their future. One is going to die. One is going to live. Joseph interprets their dreams. And two years later, finally, the one that lived remembers that Joseph interpreted dreams when Pharaoh had a dream he needed interpreted. And this was the dream of seven years of feast and seven years of famine. And so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. Joseph explains the dream and says, this is what's going to happen. And so Pharaoh makes Joseph the ruler of Egypt. So during the seven years of feast, God in his sovereignty gave Joseph the wisdom he needed to make sure that they took all of the abundance that was in those seven years of feast and stored it up so they could feed essentially all of the surrounding peoples. Because you'll, as we get into the story, you'll see people came from all over to get food from Egypt. They stored up, then the famine happens. Now you've got Joseph, excuse me, Jacob, Joseph's dad in Israel, and they're now being hit by the famine. And so his brothers, with the exception of Benjamin, his youngest brother, come, come up to, to Egypt to get food. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And 
over the story of the end of Genesis, we hear, we see this beautiful reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And finally, Jacob and his whole family come up from Egypt, or excuse me, from Israel to Egypt. And that's where the book of Genesis ends. So now we pick up in the book of Exodus, which is 400 years later. Now the Israelites are slaves because, you know, essentially God gave great, you know, great favor to Joseph and Jacob while they were in Egypt. And then we have this period of time where the pharaohs forget who they are and they end up becoming slaves. And so after 400 years of groaning and crying out, God sends Moses. We have a great story of Moses. And this is where the book of Exodus picks up. So Exodus tells the story of leaving and also God begins to give his law to Moses. Now, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are also additions to all of that. All of that is happening in Moses's life. So Deuteronomy, excuse me, Leviticus primarily focuses on law. There's very few stories in the book of Leviticus, but Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus are all filled with stories about what's going on. And one of the most important stories in that, in that time period comes from Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And you've heard me talk about this before. If you have not listened to the episode, let's be like Joshua and Caleb. Go listen to that. I think it is so incredibly relevant to the day and age in which we live. I believe that is something that the Lord taught me because he wanted me to share it with you because we need to be like Joshua and Caleb. There is such a dangerous consequence for not being like Joshua and Caleb. And what happens in this story is the people come out of Egypt. God takes them right to the edge of the promised land. And, and Moses sends out 12 spies. They're gone for 40 days. 40 is a significant number in the scripture. 40 days is, uh, there's a lot that occurs in 40 days. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. Elijah was on the mountain for 40 days. Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days. This theme of 40 days plays out multiple places in the scripture. So the, the spies are out for 40 days. They come back and they can barely carry the produce that they're carrying with them. I mean, it is so abundant, but 10 of the spies say, you know what? It, God is not, he did not, he was not lying to us that the land is as abundant as he says, but there are huge giants. The walls are too big. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb are the only two of the 10 spies that say, no, we will not talk like that. We will not think like that. God said, this is our land. We are going to go and take it. And the 10 spies turned everybody against Joshua and Caleb and so, so much so that they tried to stone them. And God became so angry with their unbelief after everything he had done for them, water from a rock, manna from heaven, parting the Red Seas, that he said, this generation will not enter the promised land. So they wandered for 40 years, the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Again, there's that number 40 again, was because the Israelites had, did not believe that God was going to give them the land that he had promised them. And that Everybody who was 20 years or older, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, died during the 40 years of wandering. And so we end the book of Deuteronomy with the death of Moses. And now it's time that that generation has, has died. Everybody who was over 20 has died. And now we've got this new generation. Joshua is anointed as the leader. And that's where the book of Joshua starts off. So you have this story of Joshua and they're going in and they're conquering and taking the promised land. And now the Jews are settled in their promised land. And then we begin the book of Judges. Now the judges, after Joshua died, are the ones that took over ruling Israel. And this is where the story of Samson and Gideon and Deborah, the female judge, this is where these stories come into play. 
Now I want to pause really quickly because I missed one detail that I want to go back to. When Joshua went to go take it over the promised land, this is where the prostitute Rahab comes into the story. And I mentioned this because there are only five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Tamar was Judah, Judah's daughter-in-law and Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So he would have been Joseph's brother. He was one of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob and he, he, um, he, he ended up impregnating his daughter Tamar. It's a hard story to explain in just a few seconds, but it's because she sought uh, her, her son, or excuse me, her husband died and he, she was not properly being redeemed. And so she tricked Judah into impregnating her to continue on the family line. So there's a, it sounds weird. It's a weird story to explain at a high level, but it's, it's in the book of Genesis. Rahab, the spy is the second woman listed. She is one of the Rahab hid the spies. I should say she wasn't a spy. She was a prostitute. But when Joshua sent spies into Jericho to, to scout things out, she hid them and protected them from the people of the city. And therefore her and her family were saved. Everybody else was destroyed. So she ends up marrying an Israelite and becoming, she ends up becoming one of the women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So now, now we're back to the judges. Sorry. I, I wanted to make sure I threw those women in there because it's important. It, this is an important detail that's captured for us in the book of Matthew. And I think it's important to include their stories in there because there's a reason that God specifically lists five women and two of whom are Gentile women. So now we are back in the time of the judges. Now, the Bible tells us that during the time of the judges, each was doing what was right in their own eyes. So things were starting to get a little bit chaotic. This is where the story of Ruth shows up. So it is during the time of judges that the story of Ruth happens. And again, we know the high level story of Ruth is that you have Naomi and her husband and two sons. They moved to Moab during the famine. Their two sons married two Moabitess women, which is Orpha or or, or yeah, Orpha, I think is her name. And then, and Ruth. So Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law. They, once Naomi hears that the famine in Israel has ended, she decides to go back and Ruth will not be deterred. She's going to go back with Naomi. And this is where Ruth meets Boaz. Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse and Jesse has a son named David. And this is where King David comes from. So Ruth is the great grandmother of King David. And this all occurs towards the end of the time of the judges. And we know because King David is king, now we're moving into the time of the kings. So this is where the prophet Samuel shows up on scene. So first and second Samuel begin the stage, set the stage for the kings. And it goes like this. Hannah was a barren woman who spent time up at the temple. Eli was the high priest at that time. And she begged the Lord to give her a baby. And if she did, she said she was going to dedicate him to the temple. And that is Samuel, Samuel, the prophet. So Samuel grows up at the, at the temple and eventually grows up to become a, a prophet, a powerful prophet. And he is the one that God sends to anoint the first king of Israel, who is Saul. So Saul becomes the first king of Israel, but he disobeys God. And so then God says to Samuel, I am going to appoint somebody, a man after my own heart. And so he, he, the Lord picks out this little ruddy shepherd boy named David. And with the, the cool thing about the story is David was actually out with the sheep when Samuel came to anoint him. So he goes to Jesse's house and he says to Jesse, Hey, Jesse, let me see your sons. And as soon as he sees, sees David's oldest brother, he thinks Samuel thinks this is the guy. And God says, no, he says, that is not the one I have chosen. He says, you are looking at the out, at the external. And the reason that this is important is because 
part of the reason why Saul was chosen to be king is because he was so tall and he was, he had such a big presence about him. And so that, you know, that's, that's what people wanted was this king. And instead Samuel goes down the line of David's brothers and God says, nope, 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 nope. And finally Samuel looks at Jesse and says, "Mm, do you have any other sons? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, I have David, my little shepherd kid. And Samuel says, call for him. And as soon as David shows up, Samuel says, this is the one that God has chosen. And he anoints David king. Now here's what's interesting. David has to go through many trials and tribulations before he's actually anointed king. So in the story, and so in the book of first and second Samuel, we have this long story of David and and all that he endured. It's, it's filled with amazing stories. So in first Kings and first and second Samuel, we get a good glimpse into the stories of David. Oh, you guys hanging in there with me now. The third woman in the genealogy of Jesus is Bathsheba, who was Uriah's the Hittite's wife. And so this is the story of David and Bathsheba. I won't rehash that with you, but their first child that she becomes pregnant with dies shortly after birth. And now we have King Solomon who ends up taking over after David. Now there's a, there, now I'm going to pause because there's a couple details I want to fill in here. When we go back to Exodus, God lays out for Moses, the Ark of the Covenant, which is where his Holy Spirit dwells. And this is where Aaron's rod is, the Ten Commandments, the manna, all of that goes in, but the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent. It was a mobile tent where where the worship and sacrifice and prayers and the ministering before the altar occurred with the Jews as they traveled and wandered. When David became king, he said, you know what, God? it's not right that I have this big, beautiful palace and you live in a tent. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a temple for you. I'm going to build a beautiful building for you. And it's going to be filled with worship. And David, because he was such a worshiper, and if you, that's where the Psalms come from. Most of the Psalms were written by David. Uh, we do have uh, some Mosaic Psalms in there, which were written by Moses. And we also have Psalms of Asaph. So the Psalms have a lot of different authors, but the primary author is David. And you'll see that a lot of them were worship songs. So David says, God, this is what I want to do. And God says, I love you, son, but you've got too much blood on your hands. So we'll let Solomon build my temple. So the tabernacle, the last we see of the tabernacle is from second Chronicles. And now that tent now gets built into a temple where God's presence dwells. And it was basically, you know, God laid out a very similar structure as the tabernacle for the temple. But the big thing to understand is that there is a huge curtain that separates the most holy, the holy of holies from the holy place where the, where the priests would all would minister to God. So this big temple, because the, because the Ark of the covenant, which is where God's presence dwelt had to be on the other side of that. And the only time that anybody entered into the holy of holies was during Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, after the priest had gone through all the cleansing purposes. And all this is, by the way, laid out in the Levitical law, in in Leviticus, Numbers, and Exodus. And now here we are, Solomon has built his temple, and it is a magnificent temple. The description is unbelievable. And so we are now in this period of time where we have a united kingdom under Solomon, who's now the third king of Israel. But, (laughs) oh, let me pause there. Solomon, so we, we see the story of Solomon in 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, But Solomon is also the author, I shouldn't say, but Solomon is also the author of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So we have the tale, we have the stories about Solomon, but he also at this time writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Mind you, uh, the Psalms are also being constructed around this time. 
You guys still following me? This is a lot to go through. <laughs> so now we have we have what was called the United Kingdom at this point. And then fast forward, the kingdoms split and divide. And Israel splits, the northern part of the, the country splits into the 10 tribes. Only Judah and Benjamin stay in the lower part of the country, which is called Judah. So this is why you have Israel and Judah referred to differently from this point on in the book of Chronicles, Kings, because now the now it is a divided kingdom and you have the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Kings of Israel are the 10 tribes that, that are up north and the kings of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, or the, excuse me, the, the group of Judah is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin where Jerusalem is. So that now we have the split that has occurred because uh, Rehoboam didn't want to do right. <laughs> so as this is occurring, there's more and more wickedness increasing in the land. And Solomon was really kind of the first one who fell at the end of his life. He got enticed by all the women that he surrounded himself with. And we kind of see Solomon does not end quite as well as he started. And this is the story for king after king after king. Now, enter now enters one of our favorite Bible characters in second first at the end of first Kings in the beginning of second Kings. Does anybody want to guess? He calls, I'll give you some clues. He calls down fire from heaven. He stays with a widow and during a famine and she never runs out of food. He raises his, her, he raises her son from the dead. He goes up in a whirlwind, Elijah. So Elijah shows up at the end of first Kings in the beginning of second Kings. And he is the prophet during the time of Ahab and Jezebel, who are the, who Ahab is the most wicked King Israel has extraordinarily wicked. Uh, we won't go into all of the debauchery that Je- Jezebel and Ahab committed in, in Israel, but Elijah's task was no small task. And he's the one who built the altar calls fire down on them. We have so many cool stories that happened you know, with Elijah. And then Elijah is carried away in a whirlwind. A chariot comes down and uh, then Elijah is carried away in a whirlwind. Elisha sees it and gets a double portion of Elijah's blessing because that's what he asked for. And now we continue on with the rest of the story of the Kings. And basically what happens with the rest of the story of the Kings is that they continue to fall and continue to disobey. And so God's like, all right, that's it. And he sends the prophets to warn them. So some of the prophets that we mentioned are warning prophets. So let's talk about those. That would be Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, but Jonah was a warning to Nineveh, not, not Israel, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Habakkuk. So we have, we have this, we have these prophets that are coming and saying, if you guys don't clean a house, God's going to judge you. Well, he does. Eventually the Assyrians come in and take the Israelites. They are never restored after that, by the way, the, the rest of the restoration that we talk about comes only from the tribe, the Judah, the remaining two tribes. And so once the Assyrians come in and take, take out Israel, now the, now the story switches to Judah because there really isn't, there isn't a lot about Israel after that. They were never fully restored. Like we're going to hear from the rest of the story. So Nahum is a prophet who prophesies against the doom of Assyria. It's amazing. God uses Assyria and Babylon to come in and take care of his people. And then he tells, he turns around and punishes them for it later. Uh, that's a, that's a different story for a different time, but you have Isaiah who warns about this and, and, you know, throughout Isaiah's life, he, you know, Isaiah has a really cool ministry because Isaiah 
prophesies not only about the, the destruction of Israel, but he prophesies a lot about the Messiah. There are so many messianic prophecies in Isaiah, but he also prophesies about the restoration of Israel. Isaiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I, I absolutely love the book of Isaiah. And then you have the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, his story is amazing because Jeremiah had very few people who listened to him. And I think this is so relevant for us to understand that Jeremiah was one of a very few prophets who were saying over and over again to the kings of Judah, you guys, like there's no turning back now. But he was so outnumbered. He had, there were so many false prophets who were saying, no, God's not going to destroy us. No, God's not going to judge us. The Babylonians are not going to come. That Jeremiah was flogged. He was thrown in prison. He was thrown in a well. Nobody wanted to hear his warning. They all wanted to listen to the false prophets prophesying peace and safety while Jeremiah is over here speaking the truth. So I think this is just something to pay attention to about don't just because something is popular doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Jeremiah was a, was it, there were only a couple other prophets during his time that are mentioned in the book of Jeremiah that agreed with him that were, that were truly prophets of God. Otherwise, everybody else was prophesying peace and safety and they were false prophets. And so this is, this is the story of Jeremiah is really profound because could you imagine having a ministry like Jeremiah's where you really didn't convince a whole lot of people of anything, (laughs) didn't change the fact that he had to do what he had to do. But Jeremiah prophesied something really important. He prophesied that the exile to Babylon is going to be a 70 year period of time. The reason that this is important is because the next prophet that comes on the scene, Daniel, he knows about this prophecy and he understands the time period that they're going to be in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel also shows up on the scene. So Daniel and Ezekiel were around the same period of time. So Ezekiel was in, was a captive at the time that he wrote Ezekiel. And so it's, it's a fascinating book to read because we have a lot of really interesting things and visions from the book of Ezekiel. So now the Israelites, so Israel is already gone with Assyria. Now Judah is taken off to Babylon. And this is where the book of Daniel comes in. And all of the stories from the book of Daniel are in captivity for that 70 year period of time. God gives Daniel all kinds of visions about the future. And after that, they're still in captivity before Nehemiah and Ezra go back and everybody is restored. We have the story of Esther. So Esther the reason that Esther and Mordecai were in the stories and Xerxes is the king is because they're still in Babylonian captivity or they have not returned yet to Jerusalem. So the Jews have not yet returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. So that's where that story picks up. So Esther and Ruth are really far apart from the timeline perspective. Cause remember Ruth is at the end of judges hundreds of years before. And now we have Esther here towards the very end. And that story is there. Now it's time to go back and rebuild. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah come into the picture. And so Ezra goes first to rebuild the temple and he works with Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets sent to encourage the rebuilding of the temple. And then lastly, we have Nehemiah who comes in to help rebuild the wall. And so let's just kind of do a quick overview of the timelines. So Moses and the Exodus occur sometime around 1526 through 1406 BC. David becomes king around 1040 through 970 BC. So this is all before, before Christ is how many people would say that. BCE is another way of saying it. Israel was captured by Assyria in 724 BC. 
And 586, so Assyria, Israel was captured, you know, significantly before Babylon came in and took over, which was around, the exile was around 586 BCE. Nehemiah re- rebuilds the wall and he, his time period is 473 through 403 BC. And we have kind of this period of, of silence that occurs after that. Now, this is when the Maccabees come in and, and Ezra, Zerubbabel's temple, they maintain it. And so now we've kind of got this. Now let's, let's take this and put this into the, the world timeline, because I think this is where this is where understanding world history becomes important. So we obviously know about the Syrians and the Babylonians from a historical perspective because they're tied into this. But because we have this silent period between the finishing of rebuilding Jerusalem and you know there are a few more prophets that come after that, but we have this silent period between that and when Jesus comes. So kind of the last historical account we're given in the Bible is the end of Nehemiah, which is around 403 BC, which we know is about a 400 period of time before Jesus comes on scene. So what happens in that 400 period of time? Well, this is when Alexander the Great shows up on the scene. Now he had a very short life. He, he was only around from 356 BC to 323. But the reason that this is an important event is because Alexander the Great, with what he did is he brought the Greek language into the picture. So now the world is, you know, the Jews spoke Hebrew up to this point. They go to Babylon and they, they, Assyrian is the language, or excuse me, Aramaic is the language that they are taught in Babylon. So now the Jews are learning to speak Aramaic. So the book of Daniel is actually written in Hebrew and Aramaic as a result. And so you have Aramaic becomes the dominating language. Alexander the Great comes in and introduces Greek to this mix. So when we get to Jesus's time, we have the original, we have the Hebrew that the, that the Jews spoke, Aramaic, which would have been the normal language at the time of Palestine, and then the Greek language, which would have been kind of the, the more normalized language, the common language around the world. Alexander the Great dies at 323 BCE, and Julius Caesar doesn't show up on the scene until 100 BCE. And so now we have the Romans who come in. So we have the Greeks, now we have the Romans who come in. And they're they're speaking Greek. This is this is where you know the Greek language still continues to be the the prominent language of the time. Hebrew would have been, you know, specifically, you know, what was the, what the Torah was studied in, the the Bible was studied in, but they also spoke Aramaic because that was the language that they that you know kind of stayed for those several hundred years after the ba- Babylonian captivity. All right. So We just covered a lot about the Old Testament history. So let's just kind of, again, I want to just recap, you know, we've got the patriarchs, the the period of the patriarchs, which ends with Joseph and everybody getting into Egypt. Then we have the Exodus, the law with Moses, and he, he goes through Joshua, which takes over the promised land, judges, the kings, exile, silence, Jesus. And there's a lot, there's so much I could talk about with all of these things. These, these books are so amazing and exciting to me, but that's kind of how it all fits. So Esther, the reason that they're, you know, in Persia, there's a Persian king is because this is after they've been taken into exile. Ruth occurs during the time of the judges before the kings come into place. You know, that, knowing all of these things, Ezra and Nehemiah come at the very end after exile, they're coming back to rebuild the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. Knowing this will help you better understand and comprehend what you're reading. Now, one of the things I'm going to cover in just a bit is what should I read when? So don't worry, we're going to get to that. Now let's get into the New Testament. So the 
the oldest character we have in the New Testament is Herod the Great. Now, Herod was the term for the ruling class at that time. So Herod the Great is Herod one. Herod Antipas is the main Herod that we hear throughout, but there are multiple Herods in the scripture because it, it, it again, is a title of, of authority. It's not necessarily referring to the same person, but the, the New Testament history starts off with John the Baptist or John the baptizer and his, the prophecy to his parents that he's going to be born. And then we have the story of Jesus's birth. And then we follow the story of the gospels up until his death and resurrection. Then the book of Acts comes in where the early church is born. And we have this story where Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, follows Paul through his missionary journey all the way to Rome. And we have the stories, the letters written to the churches. And so we'll talk about those letters written to the churches and then the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation was actually given to the apostle John. So the book of Revelation was written by the same author that wrote the gospel of John and first, second, and third John. This was Jesus's disciple, the one whom he loved as he refers to himself in the book of John. And he's also one of the sons of thunder. <laughs> so that is the nickname Jesus actually gave James and John, his brother. All right. So now that we've kind of covered the high level overview of the timelines and how everything works, let's talk about Let's talk about the, the languages that the Bible was written in, because I think this is important to understand. So the Old Testament, with the exception of the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra, were written in Hebrew. The reason that part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic is because at this point, they're now in Babylon, and so parts of it are written in Hebrew, and Ezra wrote also because he again came after the captivity of Babylon. His Part of it was written in Aramaic as well. So the Old Testament is Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament, ironically enough, is written all in Greek. <laughs> and I say ironically enough because Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. The disciples would have spoken Aramaic. And we actually see in the book of Acts where one of the ways that Paul calms the crowd is when the Jews are rioting right before he gets taken into captivity to go to Rome, he speaks to them in Aramaic, which says to them, I am from this part. I am from your part of the land. And so even though Greek was the common language at that time, it was the Aramaic was, you know, spoken in Palestine, which is, which was that regional language. And so by speaking Aramaic, he was identifying himself with them, even though he was a citizen of Rome. So the new Testament is written in Greek. The Gospels, even though, again, it wasn't their native, their primary language, which would have been Aramaic, the New Testament was written in Greek. So that's kind of where that goes. So now let's talk about the kind of the timeline of how the New Testament or how the Bible was put together. So we have this story. The Gospels are, you know, Jesus comes in and he does his ministry and we have the four different accounts of the Gospels. Two are eyewitnesses, which would have been Matthew and John. Those were two of his disciples. Mark was the traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas. And so he wrote the Gospel of Mark as an account of what, what he had learned. And then Luke was a doctor who took about took it upon himself to, to write a very detailed description of what he learned about Jesus. And then eventually also wrote the book of Acts for us. So a couple of things, and I've talked about this in one of my TikTok videos, but 
the reason that they're four gospels is they're actually written to four different audiences. They're written for all of us, but just like the epistles were letters written to the, the Corinth, the, the church in Corinthians and the letter written to the church in Ephesus, the audience, there was an audience for each of these four gospels. So Matthew, who was a Jew, a tax collector who, you know, basically had taken the side of Rome and then you know, began to follow Jesus, Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews. It shows that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark wrote his gospel to the Romans, and it shows Jesus as the perfect servant. Luke wrote his gospel to the Greeks. And and in fact, in the book of Acts, we get a, a kind of a hint that it was written to Theopolis. And so Luke even says at the beginning of Acts, he says, this the account I write to you, oh, excellent Theopolis. And he, and he references the fact that he also wrote the book of Luke. So Luke writes an account showing that Jesus is fully man, but fully God. So it shows the perfect man. And then the book of John shows that Jesus is God. He is fully divine. And it's written to a broad audience showing the divinity of Jesus. So we have Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the perfect humble servant. Jesus as the perfect man and Jesus as 100% God. So the book of John is, is where we continually see Jesus claiming to be God. And John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And just, just declaring from the very first statement that Jesus was divine. A little bit of Bible trivia in there for you. In the book of Ezekiel, there is a four four-faced creature. There are four four-faced creatures that Ezekiel has a vision of. John also has them in his same vision in the book of Revelation. And these four creatures before the throne have the face of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. These represent the four gospels, the lion being the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the Messiah. So that would have been coincided with Matthew's gospel. The ox, the perfect servant, Mark's gospel. The face of the man, the perfect man, Luke's gospel and eagles, divine, <laughs> you know, God himself, the gospel of John. So just a little bit of Bible trivia there for you guys. That's kind of a cool thing that, that I've learned throughout the years. So we have the gospels and then what, what, what we get from the epistles. So the epistles are the, all the letters to either the churches or the person. So the book of Romans, the book of Corinthians, the, they're the first and second Corinthians, I should say, the books of Corinthians, the the books of Thessalonians, the books of Col- the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians are all written to churches. So we have that you know specifically written to churches. First and second Timothy were written by Paul to Timothy. And so Timothy would, you know, was a pastor, an elder, a church leader. And so Paul writes to Timothy in those letters. Titus is a letter written to Titus. Philemon is a letter written to Philemon. Hebrews is a letter written to the Jews to show that Jesus is the Messiah. The author is unknown. A lot of people think it's Paul. Bible scholars have been arguing about this forever. For whatever reason, God did not tell us who the author is. And so we're just going to live with the fact that we don't really know who the author of Hebrews is this side of eternity. The book of James was written by James. The books of first and second Peter were written by Peter. The books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written by John, and the book of Jude, oh my goodness, I can't believe I didn't remember this off the top of my head, I'm embarrassed. The book of Jude, I believe, was also written by Jude, yes. <laughs> and, and the reason I, I laugh is because um, Jude, Jude actually would have been Judah. I, I believe that Jude is not, was not the correct name. I, don't, don't quote me on that. That's the one thing I did not 
memorize in advance of this. And then we have the book of Revelation, which is a revelation that John, the apostle, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the the gospel of John received while he was exiled to the island of Patmos one day while he's praying. So uh, the the rumor, it's not gospel, but the rumor is that John, they tried to boil him alive when it didn't work and they exiled him to an island. God always has plans. And so while John has nothing better to do, God's going to give him the end of the book. <laughs> so that is the that is how the Bible is put together. That's the story of the Bible. That's the languages of the Bible. Now let's talk about the history of the translation of the Bible. I said I was going to do that and I got sidetracked. So now we're going to get back on track. All right. So the Bible, we have, we have, you know, kind of this collection come together and it, the Bible wasn't translated into a different language. Well, let me rephrase that. The, 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 in 200 BC, so this goes way back before Jesus, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. This is what the Septuagint is. This is the Old Testament that was translated into Greek into 200 BC. So this would have been about 100 years after Alexander the Great, about 100 years before Julius Caesar. So we kind of have this, this Septuagint that shows up. That's the Old Testament translated into Greek. Other than that, we kind of now have, you know, the Bible has is not put together fully and translated into another language until 382. And that's when Jerome translates the Latin Vulgate. So that became the primary means of the scripture. And if you follow the history, you'll know that the, it, it, you know, the Bible was not allowed to be translated into any other language in certain parts of the world. It, it was very closely, it was going to be Latin and Latin was the only language. But in 995 AD, we have kind of this first crude Anglo-Saxon translation that shows up. That would have been very, very, very early old English Anglo-Saxon. And then 1384, Wycliffe, writes a handwritten English. And I say English because again, it's still, it's still a very Anglo-Saxon, old English, very different than the English we we speak today. And so again, we have huge hundreds of years gaps before the Bible starts getting translated into modern translations. This is part of the reason why I wanted to include this timeline in here is just to help you appreciate how many people died and how much work went into getting you an English version of the Bible. (laughs) In 522 AD, Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church, translated the Bible into German. And then in 1526, Tyndale finally translates it. Now, Wycliffe did it in 1384. Again, it was handwritten. Tyndale actually translates it into English in a press. Now we have some drama going on in, in England. And in this English drama, We have various translations coming up, but King James decides that he wants to secure his throne. And so he has the, he has the King James, the official King James from the state of England decide, you know, he, he commissions his, he commissions the King James version of the Bible to be translated, which is completed around 1611. Now the tools that they had obviously in the 1600s were very different than we had. So there was a lot, they had the Septuagint that they were translating from. They were translating from the Latin Vulgate. They didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are more, more recent, more recent discoveries that we've made that help us get better understanding of the scripture. So you have to remember that, you know, we're kind of have hundreds of years of things being patched together. This is where people who are not believers want to discredit the scripture. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about itself in just a minute. That's the next section we're going to talk about. But but here's here's one thing I want to remind you guys. And when I'm going to say this again when we get into Bible translations, because we're going to talk about translations of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is incredibly capable of putting together a fully divine, complete Bible for us. <laughs> 
I, one of the things that concerns me are all the conspiracy theories I hear about, well, we don't have the full Bible because the Bible did originally have 80 books. There were 14 books taken out of it for the full 66 books that we have now. And there were good reasons why the translators left them out. <laughs> so, you know, the, can, you know, is the King James the only translation of the Bible? No, we're going to talk about why, but was King James used by God to canonize and come out with a, a you know, in a formal official English Bible? Yes. But just because he was used by, by God to do the first part of the work doesn't discredit all the other work that has come after him. So let's just keep that in mind. So the first, the, the original, the actual King James Bible was translated in 1611. You can get a 1611 version of the King James Bible if you want to. You will not be able to read it. <laughs> it is written in Old English. What a lot of people who are under the misconception that King James is the only viable translation of the Bible, what a lot of them don't understand is that they're not actually reading the King James Bible. The version of the King James Bible that exists today has had hundreds of updates over the hundreds of years since it was originally translated. And we'll find out here that in 1982, the world finally decided to do something about it and translated what's called the New King James, which took all these little bits and pieces of partial updates of the King James Bible throughout the years and just finally decided to update it once and for all with newer tools, better information, and not have so many different changes that occurred to the King James Bible over that time period. Now, again, God is sovereign, and I'm, I, I believe that he is capable of making sure that we get his word in the format we want it in. But you know, a lot of the reason why people fight over this is they don't understand the true history of the Bible, and they don't give the Holy Spirit enough credit. So in 1611, we have the King James. There's not a whole lot other than these kind of random updates that go on through the King James that happen until 1971, when the New American Standard is translated. 1973, the New International, 1982, the New King James, and 2002, English Standard. We have a lot of different translations uh, since then. We have the New Living Translation. We also have the Message, which is a paraphrase. So we have lots of other tools out there to understand the scripture. Now, today, where do we stand? <laughs> well, we have lots of different lots of different translations. The New American Standard, New King James, New International, Berean Study Bible, Amplified Bible. Uh, we could go through all of these lists couple things about translations. There are two general categories of translations. So this is important to understand when you're trying to figure out what translation of the Bible to read. And I'm going to explain to you why I read from multiple translations of the Bible. There are thought-for-thought -thought translations or word-for-word -word translations. And so what is the difference? Well, let me explain to you. I've given this example before. I'm going to give it again. I speak Spanish. So if I were to ask you in Spanish, how old are you? I would say, ¿Cuántos años tienes? Now, the word-for-word -word translation of what I just said is, how many years do you have? If, if, if I were translating for somebody from Spanish to English, and I were to look at you and I were to say, he wants to know, he wants to know how many years you have, you would look at me and go, what? How many, how many years do I have? Well, I, I did a word-for-word -word translation. But if I did a thought-for-thought -thought translation, I would say, how old are you? Do you see the difference? How many years do you have versus how old are you? Hi, the, this is the difference between a thought for thought and word for word. Now, the reason why I believe it's important to have a mixture of both is that the Greek language was far more descriptive than our English language. For example, in the book of John, at the very end of the book of John, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter three times answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. There are two different Greek words 
that are being used in that translation that refer to different levels of Greek love. The Greeks had four words for love. They had agape, which was God's perfect love. They had phileo, which is a deep friendship love. They had eros, which is a a romantic love. And then stes, I forget what the fourth one is, starts with an S and it's familial love. And so Jesus said to Peter, do you agape me? Do you have perfect love for me? And Jesus said, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have a a friendship love for you. And Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. Finally, Jesus says, do you phileo me? And and Peter says, yes. So what, what Jesus was doing was giving Peter the opportunity to redeem himself for the three denials, three loves. But he was also showing how much humility Peter had received because the old Peter before the denial of Jesus would have said, yes, I agape you. I love you with perfect godly love. But the humble Jesus, the humble Peter recognized, I can't, I am incapable of loving you the way you love me. And knowing the difference between those two Greek words can make a big difference in understanding that story. So here, here's how I look at translations. I have my devotional my devotional Bible. I read from the NIV. I love the NIV. It's been updated over the years. The key thing to know about the NIV is that you have to read the footnotes because if later translations, if the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't include it, it's not going to be put in the text. It's going to be put as a footnote. It's in there. It's not taken out. A lot of people are under the misconception that the NIV takes stuff out of the Bible. It does not. It footnotes it. For my devotional, I read the NIV. When I go to study, I study with a New American Standard and an NIV together because the New American Standard is a word-for-word translation. The NIV is a thought-for-thought translation. But when I really want to dig into the words, I either get my interlinear Bible out, which has the Greek and then the New American Standard English below it, or I go to my concordance and I study the words because this is this is where I've talked about things like there are two words used for the word of God. So when John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word he uses for word is logos. But when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six and he talks about the armor of God and he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he uses the word rima. And rima is a more spoken prophetic, you know, the, the rima, the prophetic, the pronounced word of God, which is different than how how John uses the word logos. So if you want to get into that level of detail and understanding, there are great tools, concordances or interlinear Bibles for that. Now, that got way deep into the weeds. Okay. So I acknowledge that I just took you guys way deeper than we needed to go, but I wanted to point out to you that there are thought for thought and word for word translations. I recommend getting an NIV or new living translation for your devotion. That's the time where you're sitting with the Lord. You're asking him to speak to you. You're asking him to teach you. When you want to study, when you want to dig in and understand what a passage means, then use a couple Bible translations. English Standard Version is a good one for that. New American Standard is a good one for that. The Amplified Bible is a good one for that. The New King James is a good one for that. Those are word-for-word translations. So I mix it up between the two. Now, King James only. I'm only going to give this a second because I have been dealing with this argument for decades. I worked at the largest Christian bookstore in the nation for several years. I worked specifically in the book and Bible department. I have heard every argument about why King James is the only translation on the Bible I used to in the world. I have cleaned up tracks where people would leave them scattered amongst her other translations. I've had to tell people to please leave because they were littering my bookstore. The, the dogma that comes along with this, I appreciate, but it is so misinformed. King James did a great thing. He canonized the scripture. He got rid of the 14 books that 
that had major theological flaws, you know, or the translators, not King James himself, but his translators, the 14 books that are left out, which are called the Apocrypha, had major contradictions in the scripture. They had uh, tra- they had flaws in the theology. And so when the translators sat down and they looked, those extra 14 books of the Bible just did not line up with the 66. I'm going to call it divinely inspired, and I'm going to trust that God has given me his word and everything I need. I know there are a lot of people who like to get caught up in the book of Enoch and like to read the Apocrypha. In fact, Catholic Bibles typically include the Apocrypha. That's between you and God. I personally don't, don't feel the, don't feel like I'm missing anything. I've never felt compelled by the Holy Spirit. And when I prayed about reading the book of Enoch or some of these other things, I have told, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me no. And I've heard other Christians say, you know what? I went down that rabbit hole and it was not dangerous. Just remember what the Bible says. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them, but they're not the divinely inspired word of God. There was a reason why God in the canonization of his scripture did not allow those to be in there. And, and I'm just going to trust that God's perfectly divine and capable of making sure we get the proper version of the Bible. All right. So translations, I just gave you guys a breakdown between word for word, thought for thought, how I recommend using the two. We're going to talk about how to study in just a minute. But let's talk about what the Bible actually says about itself. Now, if I were to sit here and go through every scripture that the Bible talks about itself, we would be here even longer than you've already been here. (laughs) But I think it's important to understand what the Bible actually says about itself. So when we read it, we understand why this is important. I'm going to say this again. My entire life was transformed when I decided to start reading God's word every day and take him at his word and believe what he says in his word. So First of all, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, all scripture is God-breathed. Say that again. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are, this, is, this is our teacher, our rebuke, our correcting, our training in righteousness so that we are equipped to do every good work. One of the things that I will teach about on a different, or teach, there I go using that word, I will talk about on a different podcast is when is the last time God corrected and rebuked you? And if you have not sensed God's correction in your life for a while, it's time to get back in the word and get back on your knees. Because I can tell you this much, the Bible tells us over and over again, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He's constantly correcting, constantly rebuking, constantly training us. And if you have not felt that in your life, then I would encourage you to get back into a place where the Holy Spirit can be your teacher. The other thing that the scripture says is that this comes from second Peter one verses 20 through 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy has never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's reminding us that the Holy Spirit is actually the author of the Bible. He just spoke it through people. A lot of people want to discredit the scripture because they said it couldn't be written by God. Listen, Jesus said, it is better for you that I go so that the I can send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is 100% powerful enough and capable. He is the third, not the lowest, but the third member of an equal trinity. And he is the gift that Jesus gave us when he died to make sure that we no longer had to have that temple curtain separating us between him and the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit is the power by which we live our lives, the way we understand scripture. 
We're going to talk about good hermeneutics in just a second. It is 100% possible for you to sit down and misinterpret and come, come to bad conclusions about the scripture. So I, I, I do encourage you to have good tools to read your Bible, good Bible teachers to learn from, but you will never hear me say that you cannot understand the scripture without the help of a man because that would be pure heresy. The Holy Spirit is an adequate script teacher, period. He uses the body, and this is, what, this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is all about, to build each other up, to encourage each other. This is also what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 4. It says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists to build and equip the body. God chooses to use people to help, but it, it, all, it always is and always will be the Holy Spirit that enables them and, and enables us to teach and build each other up. So the Holy Spirit is the only tool you really need to understand the scripture. And I get very bothered when I hear people who are afraid to study the scripture for themselves because they, they don't have a man leading them. You just need the Holy Spirit. Now, with that said, <laughs> a lot of people think that the Holy Spirit's speaking to them <laughs> and they're misinterpreting the scripture. And we're going to talk about how to stay out of that kind of trouble. But I just, I just want to reiterate you know, what Peter said, that the word of God came about by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm confident in the power of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. This is why my mission is to just get people to Jesus because the Holy Spirit is Jesus' spirit living in us. Just get people to Jesus because the Holy Spirit and Jesus are capable of doing what they need to do in somebody's life. And then he's going to bring people from his body alongside to build and strengthen and encourage each other. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is alive and active. Anybody who tells you that they know the Bible is lying to you. <laughs> Paul says in the book of first Corinthians chapter 13, we only know in part, we only see in part, and we only understand in part. None of us are capable of fully comprehending the scripture. Now you can have read it cover to cover and studied it, but there are mysteries in the scripture that God has not revealed to anybody. There are things he's just intentionally kept mysterious. And, and as we, as they begin to unfold, we will understand them. And, and the Lord reiterates this in the book of John. Many times John admits we had no idea what Jesus was saying until afterwards. <laughs> okay. So some of the things that God gives us in prophecy are to help us understand at the time when it occurs. Oh, that's what he meant. Let me give you an example. The two witnesses. We don't know who the two witnesses are going to be, but when they come on the scene, we're going to go, that's what God meant. <laughs> okay. He didn't tell us so we could figure out who the two witnesses were in advance. He could tell us. So when they showed up, we knew who they were. And this is, comes from the book of Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 11. Now, um, and I, I'm going to get into that in just a second. I changed my mind. <laughs> All right. The Bible is about Jesus. The, the entirety from Genesis to the book of Revelation is all pointing to Jesus. Okay. So we get Jesus explains this in the book of Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. Jesus is walking along the road with men who were discussing the events of Jesus. They were some of his disciples, not the 12 core, but some of the other ones that followed. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I believe the Bible is 100% true, 100% accurate, 100% complete, 100% sufficient, 100% the truth of God. 
I do not believe it contains errors. I do not believe it contains flaws. And I believe everything that is written in the Bible, period. There is a movement called progressive Christianity, ex-vandalicalism and deconstructing that is trying to do away with that. One of the things that makes it so easy for me to believe in the Bible, apart from the personal encounter and the way that God has changed my life through his word, is that statistically speaking, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled are so astronomically unlikely that it is almost a statistical improbability that anybody could do what Jesus did to the degree of accuracy that he has. The degree of accuracy of Bible prophecy is unlike anything that exists in the world. When somebody tries to compare any other religious text to the Bible, there, there are major flaws with the, with the prophecy or major flaws with the text or major flaws with the information in it. There is only one book that has ever existed in the history of mankind that has been prophetically correct to a statistical, statistically improbable number, and that is the Bible, the Word of God. And Jesus Christ fulfilled, like, like I just read to you that Jesus explained, from Moses all well, even the Genesis, like the, the, the whole, from the very beginning, from the Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, he fulfilled and is yet to fulfill, but will fulfill so many amazing prophecies. And so I just think this is very important to understand that people who are trying to discredit the scripture or create a new version of Christianity, which Paul rebukes multiple times, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Do not be carried away by all kinds of false doctrines. He tells the Corinthians in second Corinthians chapter 11, if somebody comes to you and preaches a different Jesus than the one I preached to you, you put up with it easily enough. Paul rebukes this. So we've got this, you know, this theme going on throughout scripture. Every, almost every page in the Bible points to Jesus and the messianic prophecies in the Psalms, in, in the stories of Exodus, in the stories of Genesis, Abraham and Isaac, the Passover lamb for the Passover, they all point to Jesus in his perfect redemption of his bride. And so I just, I just want to point this out because I think this is so important to understand. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That's from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Psalm 19, 119, 105 says that God's word is a lamp for our feet and a light into our path. It is the way we know where to go and what to do. Matthew 4, 4 and Deuteronomy 8, 3. When Jesus is tempted after his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, he tells the enemy who tries to convince him to turn stones into bread. He said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is our daily bread. It is our sustenance. We require the word of God to thrive as the new creations in Christ that we are when we get saved. I I have these people who are so poorly taught and misinformed about grace. And they think that grace means that they have nothing else that they have to do once they get saved, which is one of the most demonic doctrines ever taught. You cannot earn your salvation, but once you are saved, you then have a responsibility to to be a faithful steward and servant in God's kingdom. It's not for the sake of earning your salvation. It is out of gratitude for what Jesus gave you through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the parable of the talents that Jesus saying, abide in me and I and you apart from me, you can do nothing, but with me, you can produce much fruit. It is an absolutely dangerous doctrine to think, well, I'm saved and I'm done. And so I actually had somebody who got on to tell me, I don't need to read my Bible. I'm saved. And I was like, what? 
<laughs> like I, I think I had veins popping out of my head because here's the thing. You don't read your Bible to get saved. You don't read your Bible out of a religious obligation, but you read your Bible because it's a gift. It's the nourishment. It's how you feed your inner soul and your spirit. It is, it is the power of God. It's the sword of the spirit that Paul tells us in first in, in Ephesians chapter six, put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, feet fitted with readiness of the gospel, the sword, or excuse me, the shield of faith and the sword of spirit of the spirit, which is the word of God. You reading the word of God, it, 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 it's what, it's what breathes life into who you are as a person. And so to not want to read God's word is to miss out on the bread of life, the manna. Why do you think God told the Israelites that they had to get manna every day, except for on the Sabbath? He was teaching them that there's going to come a time when I'm going to write my word on your heart. This was a prophecy given to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Deuteronomy about what the Holy Spirit was going to be to us. And that we were, we were going to daily need the sustenance of his word. And we are taught over and over again to meditate on it day and night, talk about it. It is how we are marked with the seal of God. You see, you have to understand what, what we read about in Revelation chapter 13 with the mark of the beast is that we are marked either for God or we are marked for Satan. You are marked with one or the other. And your the mark of God on your life is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, will which will keep the word of God written on your hand and your forehead in your mind, in your heart, and in your actions, the rima, the word, the spoken word of God. I cannot stress this enough. Now there's going to come a time for, and there will be believers who will not have this opportunity and the Holy Spirit will, will, will be enough for them. But, but what I'm telling you is that you were not designed as a new creation in Christ, not to have God's word flowing through your veins, flowing through your mind, lived out in your actions. This is how we know those who are marked by God versus Versus those who are marked by the world. There is no gray. There is no in-between. You don't just get to take the pass. You are either marked by Satan or you are marked by God. And the mark of God is that his word is what you love him. He is your God and his word is what you think about and how you live. The hand and the forehead, your actions and your thoughts, your daily bread, your manna. <laughs> it's not worshiping the God. I worship. It's not, it's not worshiping the Bible. I worship the Trinity. I worship God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, but I recognize what he's given me in his word. <laughs> I recognize that this is my bread. This is my, this is my sustenance for life. In Joshua chapter one, verse eight, God tells Joshua the book of the law. And in, by the way, because all they had at that point was the law. So we're going to translate this into saying my, the Bible, because now this is how this applies to us. The Bible shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous and you shall have good success. The Bible promises us that if we meditate and meditation is not what we think of where we're like, mm, clear your mind. No, no, no. This is active working, thinking, churning, praying about God's word. It's an active meditation. It's a digestion. It's a processing of his word throughout our day, throughout our lives. Your way will be prosperous. Now I realize that, that the prosperity gospel has ruined this word prosperous for us, but let me, let me explain to you. God wants you to be prosperous, not in worldly standards, not with wealth and fame and riches. That, that's the world value system, gross. He wants you to be prosperous in heaven. 
He's going to reward us. He talks about this. I talked about this in my last episode. The the prosperity that God wants to bring to us is not worldly, earthly prosperity, but it is a heavenly prosperity. And sometimes that translates into worldly prosperity so we can give it away. You know, sometimes God makes people wealthy so that way they can give to his kingdom. It's never for their own, their own. It's not just so I'm going to become a millionaire so I can become a millionaire just for me. I'm going to become a millionaire so I can invest a million dollars into God's kingdom. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with, with having some things in life, but when those things become more important to you than Jesus, then you've got a problem. When you can't lay your wealth down on the altar, this is why Jesus said it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle because it's hard not to love the world. That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both money and God, but you can serve God and use your money to serve God. Notice the difference? Psalm 119 verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. And then lastly, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Other translations would say this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Your hand, okay? This is the hand symbolized in the book of Deuteronomy, symbolized in the book of of, uh, Revelation chapter 13. Although it will be a physical market, there's also some symbolism behind it. Do not be transformed. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your forehead, your forehead and your hand. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing it yet? Are you getting what I'm taking you? (laughs) Okay. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. We need the word of God with the Holy Spirit to not conform and to be transformed, to change our actions and to change our mind. This is such a precious gift that when we allow the Holy Spirit to use it in our lives, will transform us and prepare us and make us worthy of the kingdom that Jesus gave to us. Now, When I say worthy, I'm not talking about the righteousness that Jesus gives us. None of us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm talking about to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not just good. You got saved. Congratulations. You, you, I listen, if I got saved, that would be enough, but, but we're called for more than that. We are capable for more than that. His righteousness is just the first step. We then get to get to participate in God's kingdom. He doesn't need us. Remember, he doesn't need any of us, but he chooses to allow us to work as a body and to to do what, what Jesus teaches us to pray. Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He allows us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be vessels of his will on planet earth. Not perfect, not earning anything, but just being grateful out of the gratitude of our hearts. I read God's word because of my love for him, not because I'm trying to be something. He's going to make me something. That's what Philippians tells us. He who began a good work in you. And it is both is God who gives us the will and to do, but I get to respond to that with obedience. I get to respond to that with love. I get to respond to that with faith. I get to respond to that with repentance. I get to respond to that with how I choose to use my free will once I accept his salvation. Okay, we're almost done. You guys are awesome. You've hung with me. I knew this was going to be a long podcast, but I just thought there's so many things about the Bible that I wish I had known when I started reading it that will help me understand better. So I talked about before 
how you can study with two different tools or, you know, different tools you can study with. Here's how I go about learning the scripture. I have my time with the Lord that I spend in the morning. During that time, when I read through stuff, and I'm going to talk about my reading plan in just a second, I stop after each passage that I read and I pray about it. I ask the Lord to tell me what he means by it. Speak it into my life. Teach me. I meditate on it. I chew on it. I'm not, it's not like a race to finish through the Bible. I like to slowly ponder and meditate each section and ask the Lord to begin to conform me, transform me with his word to teach me, to correct me, to rebuke me. Constantly in prayer, constantly going through it. Now, that's devotion time, study time, which is something I do differently. Sometimes I will set aside a couple hours on the weekend to study. Sometimes I will just do this at the end of the night. It just depends. When I sit down and study, that's when I get out my tools. That's when I digest something. It may be something I have a question about that I want to dig into. That's when I get out and, it, and I still pray and I'm still asking the Holy Spirit to teach me, but now I'm using other tools to dig in. I mentioned some of those tools. Let me talk about just a few more. Study Bible. There are a lot of great study Bibles out there. The two that I recommend are the Life Application, which come in NIV or New Living Translation or the NIV Study Bible, an interlinear Bible, which is it's basically concordance with a Bible together. So that gives you the ability to look up the original Greek. Uh, I don't have a Hebrew interlinear Bible. I thought it, well, no, let me rephrase that. I do have a Hebrew interlinear Bible, but it doesn't have the Hebrew definitions in the end. It's truly just a Hebrew and English Bible, and it does nothing for me because I don't speak Hebrew. I did not look up the understanding very well. But part of the reason why it doesn't bother me is one of the main tools that I use all the time is biblehub.com. It's got commentaries in it. It's got multiple translations. It's got interlinear. It's got the ability to search the Greek and and the Hebrew and look up the original meanings. That is the most powerful tool you have at your fingertips. Biblehub.com. You can also download the app for it. I recommend it. An index Bible. This is my devotional Bible is actually also an index Bible. And so if you're looking on the screen, you see it has a column down the middle. That what, what an index Bible does is it references other passages with similar themes or talks about the same person. So it lets you see where else this theme shows up in the scripture, which leads me to one of the most important tips I want to talk about, which is good Bible hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is using scripture to interpret scripture and keeping the word of God in its proper place. Okay. One of the biggest mistakes that I see people make when they study the Bible is they do not use good hermeneutics. They take scriptures out of context and they twist it to make it say what they wanted to say. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about some examples of bad hermeneutics and let me give you some examples. So the Bible says there is no God. It does. There is literally a sentence in the Bible that says there is no God but that's taken out of context. When you put that scripture in the context, it comes from the Psalms and it says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Ah, do you see how that preceding phrase completely changes the meaning? This is why I recommend reading through an entire book, especially the epistles. This is an important one with the epistles, which are Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, you know, the letters, Hebrews, read through it and then stop and take it into bite-sized pieces. Because one of the things, for example, that is often misquoted, there's two, two, let me give you two examples of things that are taken out of context all the time. In Romans chapter seven, Paul says, why is it that I do what I don't want to do, but I don't do what I do want to do? Oh, what a wretched man that I am. I know I said that really fast. 
A lot of people take that out of context and say, see, look, we can't be, we can't be good this side of eternity. That is some of the worst Bible hermeneutics that I have ever seen. And I see this all the time because when you take Romans chapter seven and you plug it into Romans chapter five, six, seven, and eight in the context that Paul's writing, Paul is not referring to life after Christ when he says, why is it that I do what I don't want to do, but I don't do what I do want to do. He's talking about his life under the law. He spends five and six explaining that we are new creations in Christ, that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. He explains to us in the two preceding chapters that the law brought death because we were powerless to do anything with it. But with the power of the Holy Spirit as new creations in Christ, we are not subject to that. And because praise be to Jesus, he says at the very end, because this is not how I have to live anymore. We can have victory over sin. We are not sinners once we are saved. We still sin occasionally, but we sin against our nature. Before we knew Jesus, we sinned in accordance with our nature because our nature was a sin nature under the law because the law is what brought out sin in us. Jesus died. He covered us in his righteousness. We became born again. He filled us with his spirit. This is what he's talking about in chapter eight. And now we are no longer under the the curse of death. We are no longer under sin. We will still fall short because we're humans, but we're not sinners. We are new creations who occasionally sin. And when we do, we can go to Jesus and he will forgive us. That passage is not talking about your life after Christ. But if you do not read that in the context of of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, you will take it out of context. And people have used that all the time to justify their sin. The same thing happens in the book of 1 John. 1 John, John teaches the exact same thing. You are no longer a sinner once you follow Jesus. Now, he says, he says one scripture that people take out of context all the time is, if you say you have not sinned, you are a liar. That doesn't mean that you continue to sin. What he's saying is that you have to acknowledge at your sin in order to come to full repentance of Jesus. But that's what getting saved is, is it's saying, you know what, Jesus, I need your righteousness to restore me back to where I was before Adam and Eve sinned. I need your righteousness to make me whole. But once that's done, now sin is not my master any longer. And so they, that scripture is taken out of context in John all the time. When you read the, full, the fullness of John, he clearly says, just like Paul says in Romans, that you're not, you're not sin, you're done with sin. You've died to sin. Those are taken out of context all the time. Okay. So that's, that's basic taking things out of context. Now we have to take, so you don't, don't take a scripture out of its context of this, of who it's being written to. This is why another example, why women are allowed to talk in church. Okay. Cause we have in first Corinthians, you know, Paul says, I, I do not permit a woman to speak in church. She needs to remain silent. Corinthians, Paul is, is, is responding to a letter that they wrote him. When he says that, he's not saying women can't talk. He's saying the women in the Corinthian church were being disruptive in service. So can you imagine if your pastor's up teaching and all of a sudden a woman goes, hey, wait, 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 pastor, I didn't understand what you said. Can you please explain that to me? That was what was happening in the Corinthian church. So that's why Paul said, women, don't talk. Ask your husbands when you get home. He's very specifically speaking about a cultural issue in that church at that time. But we can take the principle out of it, which is that we're not to be disruptive in church. We're to be respectful of who's teaching. Women, especially us women. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, it, it applies to everybody. Don't, 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 don't disrupt the pastor. Okay, so that's that is in context of the con- of of the that's that's good hermeneutics in the context of keeping a passage inside the context of what is being said there. Don't 
don't do what so many people do and take scriptures out of their context and then twist it to make it say what you want it to say, because this is how people justify their bad behavior all the time. Now, the other type of hermeneutics is using scripture to interpret scripture, keeping it within the context of the scripture. So I'm going to give you guys an example of this. I had somebody send me a video. I forget what it was called. It was a YouTube video. And it, this guy said to me, Hey, can you tell me what you think about this? And it, it was about the fact that he said he could tell you who the two prophet, prophets were going to be that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. And these are two prophets that are going to come on the scene, you know, you know, while the Antichrist is, is powerful moving and he's, they're going to be in Jerusalem and they're going to be prophesying and they're going to have fire. They're going to be able to call fire down from heaven. And they're going to do this for 1,260 days. And they're referred to as the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, there are many debates. People have many guesses as to who they are. The Bible does not explicitly say. Where the Bible is silent, leave it silent. (laughs) God will tell us. He will show us who the two prophets are when it's time. (laughs) Now, we can talk. We can guess. Uh, I'm going to go with the Moses and Elijah. Why? Because they called down fire while they were on the earth and the law and the prophets. But that's my guess. That's all it is. It's a wild guess. I think it's Moses and Elijah. I'm just guessing though. Okay. <laughs> but in this video, what this, what this, and it was well-intentioned, what he, but what he did is he started digging. He started to go, well, this is why I don't think this is this. And this is why I don't think this is this. And it seems like it's good Bible hermeneutics, but when it gets to his interpretation, his entire, his entire belief that he knew who it was, was because he took the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And he translated those to mean that the two olive trees are the church and Israel And the two lampstands are the church in Israel. And he goes to Romans chapter eight, where Paul says, or excuse me, Romans chapter 11, where Paul talks about how the Gentiles are grafted into the promise, grafted into the wild, the the olive tree of God. And he says, look, that's the olive tree that symbolizes the olive tree. And so this is what, what, what God is actually going to do is the two prophets aren't two people. They are the church and they are the Jews in the last times. And they're going to have a supernatural empowering of the Holy spirit. And they are the two prophets and we're going to be all over the world and we're going to have superpowers and we're going to be able to heal people. We're going to, and the beast is finally after, after 1,260 days going to kill us. And then for three and a half years, our bodies are going to lay out. So there were so many problems with it. First of all, in that passage, there's the, the way that days are translated in the scripture is typically a day stands for a year, but sometimes a day is actually a day. (laughs) Okay. And so in that passage, 1,260 days, is 1,260 days. Just a little bit further, when the, when the beast overcomes and kills these two prophets, it says that their bodies lay exposed for three and a half days. And he tried to say for three and a half years, their bodies are going to lay exposed, but that's going to be the entire people of Israel and the entire church laying dead for three and a half years. So he's saying that in the top passage, it stays, but in the po- bottom, it's years. So he's using bad hermeneutics and just the, just the, the context of the passage itself by changing what the day ratio means there. So he's saying, no, that's three and a half years. And that's going to be middle, middle of the tribulation. And, oh, my head was spinning by the time I was done with this. So you have to stretch to say that we're two trees when revel, when Romans chapter 11 says we're one tree. And he says, well, the lampstand represents the churches. No, there are seven lampstands and seven churches, not one. And he turned them into one, one lampstand for the church, one lampstand, one lampstand, one lampstand for the Jews. But here's what Paul teaches us. If you read the entire passage of Romans chapter 10 and 11, where Paul talks about this, we're all one. We are a, we are a part of Abraham's promise. There is no, 
this is not replacement theology, which is a different conversation for a different day, but there's not Jew and Gentile anymore. We're one in Christ, one church, one body, one Lord, one spirit, one in Christ. And so his hermeneutics of saying that we're two was so bad. It, it was crazy. My point being this, don't get carried away by all these false teachings and by these new revelations that people are having. Because this is what happens when you don't use the Bible to interpret the Bible, when you, don't, when you don't take it and keep it within the context of what is already written. Not only do you have to keep the scripture in the context of the passage that's being written, but you have to keep it in the context of the Bible as a whole. Does this sound like something God would do? Do I see this anywhere else in scripture? When you take something and you try to understand it, you have to keep it through the scripture. And so what I have, what I, what we do and what we should be doing is creating this massive filter of Genesis through revelation. And when something doesn't fit in the Genesis through revelation filter, we can go out. (laughs) That interpretation doesn't actually fit within the scripture as a whole. So that is, that is just one important thing to understand. This is why there are so many false teachings out there is because Satan knows how to take the truth and just twist it just enough. And this is why knowing God's word for yourself is so important. One of the ways I can tell almost instantly that something is a false teaching is they have a special revelation from God. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> okay. Red flag. Number one, <laughs> there's a secret knowledge known only to the church. Red flag. <laughs> I'm going to reveal something to you nobody else has ever been able to tell you before. Red flag. <laughs> it's the same Holy Spirit that wrote the word of God that has been leading the church since the day that Jesus was died and, and rose again. Don't get carried away by all kinds of false teachings. Jesus Christ is the same today and tomorrow. All right. So lastly, a couple tools to help you Learn from true Bible teachers. Again, I'm not a Bible teacher and I'm encourage you, encourager. The whole reason I did this is to encourage you to read the word of God. So it, for commentaries, uh, David Guzik is one of my favorites. So you can go to enduringword.com. Again, this is all going to be in the notes, so you don't have to look for all this stuff. And then for Bible teachings, the, the main sources I get my Bible teachings is I have an app on my phone called K-Wave. It's a radio station that just plays Bible teaching. So I listen to those. If I want to look something specific up, I go to calvarychapel.com and listen to Pastor Chuck's teachings or John Corson's teachings. And you know, sometimes I search around. I, I listen to a lot of Bible teachings, to be honest with you. But just for the sake of this discussion, I wanted to leave it at that. So I'm going to give you links to all that. All this is free, available online. The tools, most of the tools that I mentioned, like Bible Hub, Enduring Word, K-Wave, Calvary Chapels, Pastor Chuck's teachings, John Corson's teachings, all of that stuff you can get online for free. I wanted to give you as many uh, as many free tools as possible. Commentary, uh, or excuse me, concordances and interlinear stuff like that you're going to have to buy. But I, I like I like building all those tools. Oh my gosh, you guys! Whoo! This was a labor of love. No, actually, as I was praying about this and and just talking to the Lord about, it, I got so excited as I was thinking about all the stories and how they all intertwine with each other and how the Bible works and what an amazing an amazing gift it is that God has given us in His Word. And so I just again I want to encourage you: read your Bibles. So here is my Bible reading plan and make it your own, but this is how I, this is how I read the the Bible every day. So I start off with a Psalm a day. Now here's what I do is I, I let the Psalm correspond with the day of the week that it is. So today I'm recording this on August 17th. I read Psalm 27, seven, seven, 
Psalm 27, August 17th. And that helps me remember where I am. I also have Bible markers so it can keep track. So I read a Psalm a day. Again, slowly pray through each section. Then I read from one of the four gospels every day. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And when I finish John, I start back over at Matthew and I just keep reading through. I just am continually reading the gospels. I read from two of the New Testament epistles. You don't necessarily need to read from two. Again, I dedicate a good bit of time to reading my Bible. Uh, But if you're just getting started, read from one of the New Testament books. Start in the book of Acts. Hear about our story. And here's one of the fun things to do. Some of the epistles that we have, we get to see their story in the book of Acts. So for example, when Paul goes to Philippi, you can go read the book of Philippians and see how the story, how the church in Philippi got started from the book of Philippians and, and read the book of Philippians. He goes to Ephesus. You can read the book of Ephesians and see when you see what happened to Paul in Ephesus and you read the book of Ephesians and you see why there's so much spiritual warfare in the book of Ephesians. It's like, oh, that's so cool. Same with Corinthians. When you read about the, the Corinth, so you can read those, read, read one of those. And then I go to the prophets. I love my prophets. So I, I love, I love the book of Isaiah. I, I love Ezekiel. I love Daniel. I've gone through Daniel so many times. I love the minor prophets as well. Zephaniah is so, or Zechariah, sorry, is so filled with Zechariah chapter four has so much of what we see in the book of Revelation in it. That's one of the things I love about the Bible is the New Testament is in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is in the New Testament. It's, it is one book. It is truly one book. And you see this as you study it more. And then I read from the Torah, the five books of the Bible. So right now I'm in the book of Exodus. And then I also read one of the history books. And so I'm also reading the book of Joshua right now. So I read a little bit from each of these chapters every day. Psalms, Gospels, Epistle, Prophet, history, and law. Read whatever combination you want. At a minimum, I suggest a psalm, a gospel, an epistle, and a prophet. Uh, And then I would also recommend a history book because there's just, or Genesis, Exodus, read through Genesis and Exodus if you've not done that. You guys, this is a, a wonderful privilege to be able to share my love of God's word with you. I know this is a lot I hope you broke this into multiple multiple sessions, but I wanted to do one podcast on it. I could have uh, I could have saved myself a, a lot of time and made you know split this into two. But I mean, I just I think that the time is too short for for me to split this into two. We just need to be in God's Word and uh, learning learning to let Him transform the way we think. So thank you guys. Let's pray to close this up. And just in time, because it looks like the sky is about ready to unload. (laughs) So I may lose power here in the next little bit. So it's a good thing I got done when I did. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We just thank you that you gave us this absolutely incredible gift in your son, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and your word. Lord, we just pray that we may be those who have your word upon our hearts, our minds, and in our actions, Lord, that it's something we meditate on day and night. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would teach us through your word, Lord, that you would help us to guard our doctrine closely. This is something you command, Timothy. This is something you command, Titus, to guard the doctrine closely, Lord. And so teach us to have a good and understanding, weed out the bad, the bad doctrine, the bad theology that we have, Jesus, so we can just see you more clearly. Lord, we do not want to make an idol of studying you. We want to make a lifestyle of loving you. And so teach us, teach us how to use your word to draw closer to you and not to grow in our pride and arrogance, Lord, but rather may it humble us. May may it grow us spiritually. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters. Lord, I just pray that you would light a fire to read your word, to begin to, to seek you, to seek your face, O God of Jacob. And so much of that is found in the truth of your word. Lord, we love you and may your truth reign. We're just going to close with the prayer, Jesus, you told us to pray. Our father, who is in heaven, holy 
powerful and mighty is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, just take care of our daily needs and give us today our daily bread. Father, help us to forgive other people so that we can be a good steward of the forgiveness that you've given us. Lord, keep us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power. Jesus, we wait for you to come home. Come get us and bring us home, I should say. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. All right, you guys, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for hanging in with me on this one. And I hope this blessed you and gave you some additional tools so you can fall in love with God's word. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Made to Conquer. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends and family, anyone else you think would enjoy joining us on this journey of drawing closer to Jesus.